Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So have you ever received this feedback that you need to learn to mm, read the room or that you need to improve your presence or your gravitas or increase your impact in some way? Well, if you've gotten that feedback, then today's episode is for you because we are going to focus on one of the key, some of the key ingredients that impact your presence, your gravitas, and your ability to read the room. So the subject for today is body language. What's your body language saying, regardless what you're saying out of your words, and what is other people's body language saying to you, which is how you're going to begin to read the room. And just for the record, this is not a theoretical discussion. This is going to be a very practical how to, what to do to have the impact that you want to have. All right, my guest today is Martin Brooks. He's an experienced communication coach and trainer. And in his consultancy practice, he applies his expertise in reading body language to help clients better understand everybody else and communicate more effectively. And his body language analysis has been aired on a lot of TV shows, including the BBC and the Discovery Channel, particularly recently talking about deception tells, how to tell if people are deceiving you. We will get to that later in the show. His new product Body language decoder here for everybody to see, which I happen to love. I think it's fabulous. 50 illustrated cards, easy to read, things to practice that help reveal what others are really thinking and what others think you are really thinking. You can learn more at successthroughimpact.com. Martin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here and share some insights for you and your listeners. I really appreciate it. I have to let me just give a shout out to the to the book. I mean, I don't have anybody on whose book I don't enjoy, but this is unusual in that it's a card deck, mm. not a book. And at first I thought, ah, oh, and I'm starting to see, wow, this is impact because there's the tactile nature of it that's really fun. And there's the also read one at a time and think about it for a while nature that you can't do in a Mm. um, book. So, you know, good for you for working this out. I really like it. Thank you. Um, So why, I I always like to start with this question of why. Why do you care about the body language? What's the problem we're trying to solve here? The problem we're trying to solve here is when we want to communicate with other people, whatever the thought we have in our heads or the feeling or the idea, we want to transmit that as well as possible. We want to make sure that whatever that idea that it can be transmitted accurately. And it's a little bit like having a four-wheel drive car and only using one of the wheels if you're not thinking about all of the ways that you can actually transmit that information. People have got fantastic content, great ideas, but if they can't get them across in a way that other people understand them, something is lost in translation going from the, the sender to the receiver, then that causes them a problem. They don't make the impact. They don't convince, influence, or motivate their audiences as well as they could. And our focus very much in the business world tends to be on content, the things that we're going to say, the facts and the figures. And all of those, of course, are really important. However, we human beings, our primary sense is our vision. People need to look 
good. They need to look right. They need to, their body language needs to say trust, believability, confidence. And you can have the best content, but if your body language doesn't line up, if there isn't that synchronicity, that in syncness of saying confident things, but sounding confident, and particularly with body language, looking confident, then there seems to be a mismatch between the message and what we can see. And our vision is our primary sense. So I've seen many clever, intelligent, really focused people fail to have the impact that they can should have had because their body language was letting them down. And I was always being fascinated by body language. What's it saying? And the clues in the name, body language. It's, a, it's an additional way of communicating our, our messages. And because there isn't that focus, I mean, we get taught English at school, Spanish, French, all these other languages, but not body language. Why not? I should start a campaign because of how important it is. So it's really to plug that gap and to level the playing field so that people who want to communicate and have got great ideas have to get every bit of chance of creating, having success as opposed to people with ideas maybe not so good, but who have naturally more better body language. So I want to level that playing field and assist people in making a greater impact. Makes sense. Um, Charlie Language, another communications coach specialist who's been on this show in the past and um, who says, I love his quote about this one. He says, look, you know, we're making a business pitch. Uh, life and death depends on our ability mm. to win clients over and agree to work with us versus a competitor. And we spend how many hours, like days, 24 hours a day preparing a pitch book, in effect, of some mm. format but we never spend any time preparing how we deliver the message. And, you know, his notion is you got to plan this stuff. You can't just show up and say, bing, here you go. Isn't the idea brilliant enough in and of itself? So yeah. you would agree with that statement? Uh, absolutely. I am very fortunate to meet a, a major blue chip company and they had a, a chief storytelling officer. Huh. And I met with him, had a fantastic conversation with him. And he's this big tech company. And he said, you know, I can't tell you the number of account executives that came to us, came to me and said, I don't understand. This company have just turned us down in favor of another company. And we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that their offering is inferior to ours. I literally don't understand how they went with those other people. And we tried to tell them it's an inferior solution or it costs more. Uh, is because of that difference of how that uh, information is put across. And over the last 20 years, I've coached plenty of people who've got like a, a draft of a pitch, and then they're going into, maybe it's an, it's, I've worked with small businesses, I've worked with large corporate clients, individuals pitching themselves at an interview. Mm -hmm. And invariably across the board, even if the, the pitch is in a couple of days' time, I, I've, I always ask the same question. How often have you practiced this out loud? Mm -hmm. And then that's where you get people getting very interested in the patterning of the floor. <laughs> you know, they're, they won't make eye contact with me because right, they know right. what the answer is. So like you said, they spent all this time on the content and not any time really thinking about how to get that across effectively. So we're back to the four-wheel drive car, only using one wheel again. And I love the rapper Chuck D's quote about before people buy from you, they have to buy into you. There has to be that truck before people buy from you, they have to buy into. And that means you need to look good. That body language confidence needs to come across. If they're going to invest time, money, or, or, or give you a job, they help them believe in you, help them get 
understand that it's an easy decision. Whenever I coach people for interviews, I always say, your job is really, really simple. So at the end of the interview, you've sent the new benchmark that every other interview following you has to has to has, has to, to come up to make their make that interview panel's decision easy so that right. they go we have to hire this person this is the this is the woman this is the man that we want well and we're talking about this as if selling an idea to a client or selling yourself in a new job interview but i think we underestimate the importance of selling an idea internally selling an mm. idea to your boss selling an idea yes. to your peers selling a new approach to your team. I mean, all of those are effectively selling in a light touch S, not in a big touch S. And we underestimate the importance of all of this. Okay, I have to ask you a question. So Mm. everybody, when I talk to them about body language and rehearsing, wants worries about this notion of appearing like a fake. Mm. They don't want to feel (laughs) fake. And if they have rehearsed some of the body language pieces, they're worried that they're going to be seen as a fake. What's your response to that? Okay. So this is one of these scenarios where I am not on the fence. Uh, It's like, suck it up. Okay. Just (laughs) suck it up. And the analogy that I use is like, people say this, oh, if I do that, I won't feel authentic. It It won't be me. It won't be real. And I said, look, every single human being on the face of this planet was born with one communication skill, and that was the ability to cry. (laughs) Apart from that, from day one all the way to today, we've been learning, 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 learning. At what point does that learning stop? And then anything you do differently is inauthentic. It's just, to me, it's a ridiculous argument. And I I like to challenge people. I say, okay, so, so I'm based here in the UK. So I said, have you ever... Did you learn to drive in the UK? People say yes. And I say, so when you uh, go to Europe or when you go to America and you, you drive when you're on holiday, uh, which side of the road do you drive on? And they say, well, the right. And I say, well, you're, you're not being authentic. You're, do, you're, you know, you're, you're doing it the wrong way. And they go, well, of course, of course I would drive on the other side of the road because it's the right thing to do. And I said, exactly. And leveraging your body language is the right thing to do in order to be able to make the best possible impact. I often find the authenticity argument is an excuse for not doing the work. Because when we do something new and different, it feels awkward. Day one of driving on the opposite side of the road feels horrifically awkward. In fact, whenever I drive in the States, my brain's screaming, you're going to die. You're on the (laughs) wrong side. Because, you know, the old habit. And human beings, we are incredible creatures of habit. We get set and used to doing things. So this idea of authenticity, it won't be real. Yes, you're absolutely right. It won't be feel real or natural the first time, but it'll feel a little bit more natural the second time, but a little bit more natural the third time, and more natural the fourth time, and the fifth, and the sixth. And after a while, once you practiced it, of course it'll feel natural. But it's, it's almost to me, it's like a cop-out for doing the work. So if you feel unnatural, basically that tells me you haven't practiced enough. So there's one simple solution to that. Go practice. Practice. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the whole, I mean, the whole notion of the show out of the comfort zone means that I'm going to do something I have not learned to do yet. I'm going to push myself. That means it's going to feel, you could use the word inauthentic. I prefer the word unnatural, awkward, Mm. strange. Because it's new. And I, I guess sure. my choice is do you want to learn or you don't want to learn? Like <laughs> simple. Yeah. All right. Now I want to do this with a different use of the word fake mm. because the common phrase is also fake it till you make it. 
Okay. Yes. Which a phrase I dislike because I think it's hard to truly fake it when you're not feeling confident about what you're saying. Yeah. So, because I think this body language stuff is hard to pretend on. So, mm. what's your view? Can you fake it till you make it? Ah, okay. So, there's, a, there's an interesting distinction here that I make in confidence. And there's conf- where, where does confidence come from? So, I can, I can say to people, this is what confident body language looks like. If you want to appear confident, stand like this, move like this, gesture in these particular ways. This will help you appear confident. Now, con- th- this behavior is a, it's almost like it's the tip of the iceberg. There's a, things that need to be underneath that, below the waterline, is that genuine feeling of confidence. And the fake it till you make it scenario, that was William James back in the 1890s, talked about, you know, fake it till you make it, updated by Amy Cuddy in her fantastic TEDx TED talk around how you can leverage your body language to actually increase the testosterone confidence hormones and decrease the cortisol, the stress hormones. And there's a lot of science behind that. The thing about the fake it till you make it where it gets a bad idea, and there's actually there's a really interesting case in the UK at the moment where a Forbes 30 under 30 billionaire tech startup person is now going to prison for fraud because there was no there was no content to the product. So that, that's fake it till you make it to a huge stretch. So the, there's confidence. Where does it come from? It comes from a couple of places. You can have what I call competence confidence, as in I have physically done this thing before. Therefore, I can be confident I can do exactly the same thing before. Now, does that mean we can only be confident about things that we've exactly done before? Step one, step two, step three, step four. No. If the components are similar to what you've done, but there's a new assembly, and I often use the example of the top sports stars, they have no idea how that game is going to go. They have no idea how that tennis match, how that football match, how, how that basketball match is going to go. But So their, their confidence isn't because they know exactly how the match is going to go. It's because they have confidence in the abilities that they know they will need to be successful in that moment. Now, could I, be, could I fake it till you make it to be a confident world-class basketball player? No, I don't have the building blocks. That's a stretch of fake it to you. I cannot fake it to you make it because I do not have those building blocks. Okay, I'm six foot one, but that's not that's that's just not enough. I don't have the talent, I don't have the experience, and at 53, I don't have the needs for it either. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and I am a big believer that you're better off in saying, I don't know. Or this is new to me, or I'm still in learning mode around this one, or throw it to a question to somebody in the room to pick up rather than pretending, because we all know you don't know. You have never played this basketball game before or whatever. We can kind of see it. So you're better off not pretending. Okay, so while we're on confidence, Mm. I can't help but talk about confidence because it's the thing everybody is worried about. And I will start with, first off, if you think you're the only person in the world who lacks confidence on occasion, I'm going to tell you, you are absolutely wrong. Every human being who's not obnoxiously arrogant and does anything that gets out of their comfort zone has moments of a low level of confidence. Mm. So what do we do to first do a performance of confidence? What does good really look like? Yeah, well, what, what, what does good look like? Well, the interesting thing about, about that, is, and you're absolutely right. I mean, 
I mentioned to you that I did a, an interview live on national radio today. And my heart was pounding, uh, you know, today, you know, it was, I was like, well, what are you going to get? And the big thing for me is always interesting about what psychologists call the inner voice, that yes. inner dialogue in the head. Now, that inner dialogue and that lack of confidence or that, that nervousness, that to me is the brain's way of saying, you need to be on your top game today. Mm-hmm. You, it's, it's almost like a warning. It's like the fear you get when you're on top of a tall building and there's like the edge. You, know, you get that natural, healthy fear. You need to pay attention. So nervousness to me has a function. A drop in that level of confidence has a function. It's your brain's way of saying you need to be on your game and you need to be thinking really well. And the second piece is then is that self-belief to be able to access the building blocks of those skills that I talked about that you have, to be able to bring them together in a coherent form and not stand in our own way. So our inner dialogue for me is a key way of being able to do this. In those nervous moments, what do you say about yourself to yourself inside your head? Mm-hmm. There's wonderful research around uh, Professor Ethan Cross talks about, he's written a book about it, about our internal chatter and the effect. Mm-hmm. One distinction I loved about what he said, and they've done some research on this, that if we say to ourselves, I've got this, your, your confidence levels will go up. But an interesting distinction is that if you say it in third person, so if I say to myself, Martin, you've got this, it increases the effectiveness of that internal dialogue. There's something about that third party external perspective that our brain believes more. It's almost like somebody else is telling us because somebody else telling us that we've got this makes us feel more confident than ourselves because we always almost feel like we're trying to fool ourselves. So a nervousness is your brain's way of saying, hey, there's more, more to do here. The second thing is then to go reframe that internal dialogue to be positive and supporting, to bring those building blocks together. And third, and most importantly, do the work. <laughs> you can't just bluff <laughs> your way through it. That confidence comes from, I've got this, I've thought about it, I've done my research, I've done my homework, I've got my key statistics, I've run through that presentation a number of times, and there's no substitution for do the work. Do the work, right. Now, a caveat on that one, because sometimes you're doing a presentation where you haven't done all of the work, your team has done all the work, mm-hmm. and you are representing the team's work, Okay. That doesn't mean you need to go replicate it. I think that means you need to rehearse it with your team. Make sure, sure you've understood it with your team, that your team is, is coaching you through it, that you've gotten all the key points they want you to make. And to also know when you get a question you're not prepared for, how were you going to throw that to the team member to answer it without losing control of your presentation? Those two are skills of rehearsing, I yes. would add. Yeah. It's, it's rehearsing. And for me, the, I, mean, I, I, I failed miserably on this in, very early on in my leadership career where there was like a cascade. So it comes from the top, do this. At every level, the managers are responsible. And I did that. And I just cascaded what was told to me and was woefully unprepared for the questions that I got. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge learning point for me. It's like, well, why didn't I think of that? And the truth was, I didn't really anticipate the questions. From that right. day forward, what I've always done, so if I was in the audience, what questions would I have? Mm-hmm. I put myself in the audience. What would I, my concerns be? What would I want to know about? And that really helped me prepare, as well as asking other people, you know, right. what questions normally come up, what issues. 
The other thing then is about getting questions that you haven't you haven't uh, prepared for, or not prepared for, you, I've kind of caught you off guard a little mm-hmm. bit. The last thing you want to do is what we call the hot potato. We go, I don't know the answer. So, Bob, what do you think? <laughs> you know, and throw that question to them. And they're going to hate you. And that, that team cohesion breaks down completely in the eyes of, of the person. So always set up a, a signal system with the team. If I get a question I don't know, I'm going to look. And I'm going to look to you. I'm going to look to the team. And I'm going to want a signal from you going, I actually, I actually, I do know the, the answer to this question. So somebody can take it as opposed to just throwing it at somebody. Because you might throw it at somebody who doesn't know the answer and sat next to them or in the team with somebody who does know the answer. They don't get the chance. Then that person starts making something up. And this person goes, oh, that's the wrong answer. Now what do I do? Right. So it's really about that preparation of anticipating getting a question you don't know the answer to. Working through how you would use that in the team, do the preparation, of course. But the final thing I'd say on this is it was the very first day in my first job back in August 1991, my first manager, a lady called Kirsten Lawson, and she said to me this wonderful piece of advice that I've always taken away based on this topic. And she said to me, Martin, in your first week, I don't expect you to know the answers to all the questions, but I do expect you to know where to go to get the answers to all the questions. So having the system, where can I go and find that data, even if I don't have the data, have that system set up and to be able to confidently say to somebody, I don't have the answer. I do know where that information exists and I'll get back to you, bye. Okay. All right. So some wonderful tips there about confidence. One is I have to have done the work. I have to anticipate Mm -hmm. where the questions are coming. Um, And I have to prepare with my team how we're gonna handle anything that's unexpected. So that's a part of doing the work. Second tip is to say that inner dialogue, take control of that inner dialogue and put it in the third person. As in, Wanda, you can do this. Wanda, you're as prepared as anybody. Wanda, you know as much as anybody else in the room or whatever is appropriate, but keep that positive dialogue running in your head in the third person. And I'm missing one that you said, keep it positive. Keep it positive, keep it positive, keep it positive. Absolutely. Work out those signals with your team. Right. You know that if you don't know the answer, you'll turn, somebody will go, actually, I'm happy to take that. I've got that. So you you work that out. And or if you don't know the answer, make sure you can articulate that you know where the answer lives and you can go get it. Right. Go get it. Um, Sometimes I also say for people in the room that sometimes the question that comes out of total left field you know, you're thinking a thousand and one things, but the person actually meant something that wasn't crystal clear. So sometimes mm-hmm. just redirecting, telling me more about what you're asking or tell me why you're concerned about that or what's the core issue here gives them a moment to articulate and you a chance to think too. That can also help. Sure. But let's go back to your specialty, Martin, body mm-hmm. language. Yes. So what does the body language of a confident person look like? What distinguishes their body language from anybody else? Yeah. So one of the first things is posture, how people hold themselves, how they sit and how they stand and even how they, how they walk around. When I was in my late teens and early twenties, I did a lot of travel. And my father said, said to me, give me this piece of advice. He said, no matter where you are, always look like you know where you're going. So stand up straight, throw your shoulders back and walk in a fashion that people around you think, well, this guy clearly knows where he's going. And then I saw years later, I saw some research 
where they were look they were interviewing street robbers in prison. You know, well, why did you pick that person over that person? And funnily enough, the things that they said, well, they they were hunched over. They looked they looked like a soft target. They looked nervous. They looked unsure. So the number of times in my in, in my youth marching resolutely down the street in the city I'd never been to before, looking like I knew exactly where I was going, <laughs> just so I could find a quiet corner, open my guidebook and look at my map and try and figure it out. But I never got mugged anywhere in Central America, South America, North America, Africa, Asia. I, I never had any issue. And I, you know, I'd like to thank my dad for that piece of advice. So your posture, how you stand, how you move, eye contact, how you interact with people, that's a high quality thing in terms of, 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 of confidence. You know, the old idea, look me in the eye and say that. So making strong levels of eye contact with people. When walking, confident people will look where they're going, not down at the floor in front of them. So they look, at, they look where they're going, not down at the floor. So they're always looking, looking out. And it's interesting in my life, I find sometimes when my, you know, things going on in your personal, your professional life, I noticed it recently, a few weeks ago, and I, I noticed I was looking at the floor as I was walking around. I, thought, I don't normally do that. And it was, it was part of my general psyche. It was fascinating that I just noticed that my eye level had dropped and I was looking at the floor as I was walking along. So I made a deliberate effort to bring it back up. And then gesture. How do you reinforce it is what you're saying? And there's some classic confidence gestures that are in body language decoder in the confidence section, things that are uh, you see very often U.S. presidents use in the inaugural addresses. I always find that they're fascinating to find. So Joe Biden did the double-handed parallel chop 78 times in his inauguration speech uh, just uh, almost a year ago now in his inauguration speech. Barack Obama used the Bill Clinton thumb of power gesture 94 times in his inauguration speech. So these, so it's, it's, it's posture, it's also movement and what you do with your eyes, but then also there's some classic confidence gestures that you see that you can utilize and project that confidence about what you're saying as well. So a, those are some key ways so where your confidence can come through in your body language. Okay, so posture. I see this all the time and I do this with classes all the time. If you slump, you have everybody in the room just kind of slouch down. You look around the room and you think, ick, I wouldn't listen to any of you. Sure. Sit up and suddenly you're much more interested in hearing what people have to say. And it's amazing how bad we've all gotten with our posture. Yeah. For yeah. We'll specu- won't speculate on why, but it's a powerful thing to do. I totally agree with you. Um, and the hand gestures, I think, is a really – so eye contact, yes, and making sure you're making eye contact, but – I'm going to qualify, I know you do this in the cards as well, that there is a cultural component for how long I can hold somebody's eye gaze before I need to look away and then look back. So, you know, not overdo that, particularly if you're from the West interacting with somebody from the East or Middle East. Um, But these hand gestures I find really interesting. So you talk about it in terms of the power chop, Mm -hmm. the hands um, straight up and like you were going to chop a block. And the thumb, where it's almost a fist, except the thumb is on top yeah. of the fist, so it's not clenched, yeah. and it feels really good. What about these other gestures? Like, um, So we know not to use a pointing finger. That's yes. a confrontational. We don't want to yeah. do that. But we, sometimes you see people do other things with their, with their fingers. 
So what do I do with my fingers if I don't want to point at somebody? You got any suggestions? <laughs> okay, so yeah, so pointing is one of, one of the power plays. It's a very aggressive gesture because if you point at somebody, literally, my line is, it's one finger away from a fist. It's literally yeah. one, one finger away from a fist. So it's very, very clear. It's very aggressive. It's very in your face. It's very much an or else gesture. Yeah. It's definitely not uh, one where things are open to negotiation. So what else can we do with our hands? Well, for example, if you want to invite people to join in a conversation, you can use the open, what I call the open palm invite. So, so what do you think? And you show them an open palm. And this is the exact opposite of holding a fist or being aggressive. It's, like, it's inviting. So what do you think? What are your thoughts? How do you think we can progress? We've all been in meetings where leaders think they've done a great job and then they of facilitating conversation and then say, so tell me, what do you think? And they cross their arms, you know, and, and then they go, why is nobody speaking? <laughs> because yeah. you've not invited anybody to contribute. So the open palm invite gesture is a really useful one for getting people to talk, uh, to, talk to you. How you, you said specifically finger. So let me talk about that. When people are, are, are communicating ideas, one really useful usage of the fingers is what we call signposting. So if you say, I've got three key points that I want to go through, and you show three fingers, then as you're talking, particularly if you don't have a visual aid, particularly if you mm -hmm. don't have a, mm -hmm. a PowerPoint deck or a Prezi deck behind you, I want to take you through three key issues. And you go, firstly, and then you go through the first one. Then you signpost. Number one is finished. We're now going on to number two. So the second thing that I wanted to say, and you hold up, Two fingers. Now, I, I've, I've deliberately re reversed the hands around because in the UK, the fingers point the hand around the other way means very different. And when I did one, I made sure it's my forefinger and not the middle finger because of what yeah. that culturally means. <laughs> so I'm a little bit careful there. So signposting. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about maybe two, three minutes later. And the second issue that we need to go through. And of course, thirdly and finally, and then when you do a, re a summary, so let's recap. So we talked about this, one finger. We talked about this, two fingers. We talked about this, three fingers. And it creates that almost, almost invisible, but very visible structure in what you're saying. Let's people know that you know what you're talking about. Let's them know where they should be in the conversation, where they are. And then it helps that, as that really visual reinforcement of the structure of what you're saying. Right. It also makes you look like you're in control of sure. what your message is. Because yeah. I've thought about it, there are three, one is this, two is this, three is this. And the structuring of that, I think, also conveys um, expertise, if you will, knowledge, awareness, and that's part of your confidence message. Sure. And I will confess, I stole that shamelessly years ago from someone, <laughs> and I use it now all the time. It's a very powerful gesture. Absolutely. Okay. I watch a lot of people. One of the things that I, you know, people ask me all the time is, so we're all in our hands. We'll just finish this one off. Um, I'm standing in front of an audience, don't know what to do with my hands. So there's a tendency to stick your hands in your pockets or stick mm. your hands clasped in a, you know, thing behind you or to stick your hands clasped hard in front of you to kind of have something to hold them on to. Uh, what's your advice on what yep. to do with your hands? Yeah, people just say to me, what shall I do with them? And my, my retort, well, you don't have to do anything <laughs> with them. They, there's not a particular place they need to be assigned with. Now, you're right. 
the worst thing to do is to have them behind your back because that makes people feel nervous. You know, what, what can I not see? You know, mm-hmm. the fear of the unknown. That's why we're scared of the dark because we can't see things. Not because there's anything scary there. We just don't know. So when the hands are behind the bar- back, it's an unknown. Hands in the pockets, even worse no-no because when people put their hands in their pockets, particularly in a business presentation, it just looks too casual. And I'm afraid to say when men do it, they put their hands in their pockets, they find coins in there and they start, oh, I wonder what kind of coin that is. And that just looks terrible from <laughs> the audience perspective when a man has his hands in his front pockets and he's rummaging around. It sends all the wrong signals. So my advice is always, look, uh, sorry, the other thing you said about bringing the hands together. The problem with that is what we'll tend to do what we call self-comfort gestures. We'll start to Look at to do that physical soothing. Look to give the the oxytocin that comes with touch. Give us those feel good factors, and those are called self comfort gestures. So generally speaking, not good to bring the hands together like that because we'll start to self comfort, and it also forms a barrier, brings the arms in front of the body, which tends not to be good. My advice is have a couple of key gestures that you can use, like the double parallel hand shop, like the open palm gesture that we talked about. Then when your hands aren't in use, they can hang by your sides. That's fine. That's a good home position for them to be in. And then when you're ready to bring them back up, then you can utilize them. And arguably, they'll have more impact because it's like, oh, the hands are up. This must be a key point. This must be something interesting that the person wants to reinforce. So, yes, you're right. Not behind the back. Definitely not in the pockets. Not brought together because you'll do self-comfort gestures. Have a home position by your sides where you're comfortable doing them. And then bring them up to punctuate certain points. Okay. Great, great advice. All right, Martin, this is a place where we need to take a break. So my guest today is Martin Brooks. The book that we're talking about or the cards that we're talking about is Body Language Decoder, 50 Illustrated Cards on Things to Do Yourself and to Watch in Others. When we come back, we're going to talk about deception. How do you tell if your audience is with you or not with you or not telling you the truth? Either way, we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. 
but I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Martin Brooks. We are talking about body language. How do you portray confidence yourself? And how do you um, make sure that you're projecting the kind of impact that you want to have? And I love one of the first quotes early on that you gave, which is, before people will buy you, they have to buy into you. Or before people mm. buy from you, they have to buy into you, buy into. which works whether it's an internal promotion, whether it's an opportunity, whether it's an external interview, whether it's a product, whether it's an idea, it applies all the way through. And we've talked about this notion of confidence how, what the performance of confidence looks like, posture, what to do with your hands that projects confidence, all of those good things and some things to avoid. We've also talked about there is no substitute for the mental prep so that you have rehearsed it, you have tried it, you've understood what works, what doesn't work. You've got your message down and you've anticipated what kind of questions you're going to get as well. Okay, so Martin, I have to turn now to the thing that perhaps you are particularly well known for and that everybody (laughs) wants to know more about deception. Mm. How do we tell if somebody is lying? Uh, This is one of these topics that just seems to absolutely fascinate people about the, the body language of deception. And we have to pay homage to Professor Paul Ekman, who is the, the, the godfather of deception detection. He's made it his, his life's work. And body language is a really interesting way because we have that old idea of the body speaks the mind. The body speaks the mind. So, some of the, so when we, we know, because the person who's lying, on, on, unless they're a malignant narcissist, they know they're lying. Right. So lying is an unnatural human state. It makes the average person feel uncomfortable. We, the, per, the person's doing it, they know they're doing it. And of course, the consequences of doing it are going to be, will I get away with it? Will I get caught? You know, what will happen if I get caught? But also maybe what will happen if I get away with it? So there's all sorts of internal conflict in the mind. And then that will show in the body language in a variety of different ways. Now, it's an inexact science. You know, it's very difficult to be able to accurately do it. Uh, Pamela Meyer, the wonderful body deception expert, uh, she, she got the 11th most viewed TED Talk on deception, well worth going and checking out. And she said, we think we're good, we're, we're good at this deception detection, but actually, in my experience, only about 52 people actually get it right. That's just chance. That's, that's flick of a coin. Really, what we need to do is look at what the science says about deception. 
And any of these behaviors, you need to look at what we refer to as clusters, a number of these things happening and the timing of when they're happening. And even then, it's still areas of gray. You still have to make a call on, do I believe, do I want to go forward? And never, ever, ever going, you touched your nose, you're lying. You know, right. Because invariably, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be accurate. So then we come down to, okay, so what are some of these deception tells? You know, we, we often use this word tells in terms of poker tells. What do people do when they know they've got a good or a bad hand? What are the signals? And this is where the reading other people comes into play because we're being sold to all the time. Like you say, products, ideas, right. thoughts. So some of the classic deception tells. One, I was commenting on national radio today, our own uh, prime minister here in Britain, one called, we call it a truth slip. So he was asked a straightforward question, did you do something? And whilst denying it, he nodded his head emphatically, not just a little bit, emphatically, yes. So his body answered the question. So this is what we call a truth slip. So if you say to somebody, did you do that? And they go, no. And they nod their head. And President Richard Nixon very famously stood up in front of the, the nation and said the words, people need to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook, and nodded his head, yes, and then went on to say, I earned everything that I've got, whilst shaking his head, no. So there's two classic truth slips. He said, he said uh, well, am, I, am I a crook? No, but nodded his head, yes, and insinuated that he'd earned legitimately everything that he got, and he shook his head, no, I didn't. So that's a truth slip. Then another good deception tell is one called duping delight. And this is where people are asked a question and they've rehearsed. We talked about the power of rehearsal, but in this case, they've rehearsed their deceptive answer. And this is my, um, what happens is if they feel they're getting away with it, if they feel they're being believed, then that will give a release of positive emotions <gasps> and relief, you know, and that will, you know, the happiness, the classic sign of happiness is to smile. Now, if you lie to somebody and they believe it, it's probably not a great idea to go, <laughs> And then do a massive smile. So what will happen is people will, a smile will start and they'll just suppress it. So you might just get the corners of the mouth just upturned or be held. And it's the tiniest little indication of a smile. It's quite difficult to spot that. So my top tip for deception, if you think somebody is lying to you, tell them you believe them and watch their mouth very carefully. <laughs> so let, let's say, for example, I take your word that the earliest date you can deliver that product is, or the best discount you can give us is, or that this thing that you've said is true. So if you, if you get that funny feeling that heebie-jeebies is sixth sense, the hairs in the back of your neck start standing on end, test it, create the environment where you might be able to spot duping delight. So suggest that you may well believe what the person is saying and then watch for the relief, the little duping delight smile to come out. And that could be some further evidence that will allow you to make a more informed decision about what you're going to do with what this person has said. But look for lots of evidence, look for lots of evidence. And those are two ways you can look right. for truth slips and duping delight. Right. Yeah, and I know you're very cautious, both in the cards and in general, about not taking any single indication yeah. because there's all sorts of reasons why people might have do one single gesture at a moment in time. You talk about looking for a cluster. Tell us about mm -hmm. this idea of cluster. Yeah, so, so the 
The interview that I was uh, I was talking about today with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he did a cluster. He did three separate deception tiles, and in a, in a, I think it was a thirty-five second answer. So that's a cluster. So he did a truth slip, he did duping delight, and then he had nervous laughter when he was being asked about a really serious question uh, about did did effectively did he break the law? You know, that's not the kind of thing that normally engenders humor unless it's nervous laughter. So we did all three of those in just over 30 seconds. That's when we talk about a cluster. There's lots of different pieces of evidence, but they all point in the same direction. We can inadvertently do deception tells, particularly when we're nervous. Mm-hmm. And this is where armchair experts often get it wrong. Oh, that person's just done that, that one thing. That they've now that, that 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 will clearly tell me that they're lying. Even as we went into this section, it was it was just hilarious. I don't know, it was it was that psychosomatic thing, but the the idea that people touch their noses when they're when they're lying, which FBI body language deception expert Joe Navarro says there's absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. It's the Pinocchio myth. But as we were going into this section of deception, all of a sudden my nose got itchy, and I was like, <laughs> oh no, I'm going to scratch my nose. That wasn't because I was being deceitful, but I, but I had that thought: Shall I not scratch my nose, even though it's it's genuinely itchy, because of how that might uh, might look? So it is one of these areas that people think they're accurate on. The science says, you know, Pamela Meyer, fifty-two percent, only fifty-two percent of people get it right, and you do need to look at clusters and be aware and be prepared to be wrong. Because okay. it's not an exact science, but you're looking to build evidence and clues. And like any mystery, the more clues you have, the more likely you are to make an accurate right. call. Right. And you say rightly, you know, come back to a question, ask in a different context, shift mm. the direction, come back, see if you get the same deception tell again, and yeah. you're again starting to build evidence. Lots of wonderful advice in the body language decoder. All right. Now let's shift to the last most important piece. It's not the last, but the next most important piece, which is managers always say to somebody who's trying to develop their impact you got to learn to read the room. Mm. If you don't know, and first off, human faces are very difficult to read just as a face to know what somebody's thinking or feeling. But what's your guidance for what to look for in terms of reading the room? Yeah, for sure. Well, the first thing is that so to go back to something we talked about before is to be prepared. Because if you're not prepared, you're very much in your own head. What's the first thing they want to say? Then what's the second thing they want to say? And literally, there's no processing power left in your brain to actually pay attention to your audience. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to read the room unless you've actually done the work so you can be in more of an attentive state to what your audience is actually, how they're responding. And when I first started studying this way formally, way, way back in 2002, and the lecture that I was, I was listening to, he said, when you get, he talked about sensory acuity. Mm-hmm. The ability to pay attention to other people, how they're responding, how they're reacting. And he said this thing, it stuck in my mind. He said, when you get good at this, you'll be able to change the second half of a sentence, depending on how people have responded to the first half. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, no, nah, that's crazy. There's no way I could do all that multitasking all at the same time. But the caveat, of course, was, when you get good at this, when yeah. you do the work and put the effort and the time in. And now it's almost like it's almost like breathing in and out. It's second nature to be able to go, I'm going to say this, let's see how that lands. How do we do this? So how do you read the room? 
Well, let's talk about well, what are you looking for? If you want, if you're looking for agreement, you'd be wanting some agreement signals. So you'd be looking for people to be nodding and going, yeah, that's, that, that seems like a good idea. You'd be looking for mirrored facial emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you say, this is a really exciting opportunity, you'd be looking at people going, well, I'm, I'm feeling excited. Now, if you're expecting excitement and you're getting confusion, people are kind of looking, but particularly if they do that sideways thing where they, they, they feel, this doesn't sound right to me. And then they look to the person, are you getting the same? They look to the person, people next to them and going, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Because I'm not understanding what I'm hearing. So that's a classic sign of you're not getting your message across. You're certainly not being understood. So you're looking for signals of agreement. You're also looking for signals that, that, are, uh, that are indicating the opposite of what you would expect. The third category I think is really important is where people actually want to comment or say something. Mm -hmm. And signals for that are people will actually hold their breath. They'll go, because they're waiting for a gap in your conversation. So you'll see people literally sit up and their shoulders will rise and, and you can see people holding their breath because generally their mouths are closed. Because they're just like, please stop talking. <laughs> yeah. I want to say something. I want to interrupt. And often, you know, remember we were kids and we were taught, if you want to talk to the teacher, what do you do? You raise your hand. You raise your hand. And you'll see people go, and they'll maybe come up and adjust their glasses or adjust their, but what they're actually doing is they're saying, hey, <laughs> can you please let me say something? So the three things for me for reading the room, look for signals of agreement. Be aware of getting signals of confusion or lack of understanding and pay attention to when people actually want to contribute or say something. And that then helps you keep that as a dialogue, as an interactive conversation, as opposed to a monologue where you're just talking at people rather than talking with people. So those are three three categories of things that I often think to look for when reading a room. Pretty good. And you can tell, I love this mirrored facial expression. So you're right. You'll get the head nodding if people are in agreeing with you and they'll be smiling at you. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm on, yeah. on track. It's working. It's on track. Yeah. But this mirrored expression to whatever you're showing, whether it's emotion or anger or fear or, you know, enthusiasm or concern or worry, you want to see that mirrored reflection. And in fact, sometimes even mirrored in the body posture. Yeah. We'll say, if you're leaning forward and other people are leaning forward, that's a clue too, I think, that you've gotten, that they're on track with you, or at least yeah, that's Sandy Petland's research. Yeah, that's the, class, that's the classic Sheryl Sandberg, isn't it? You lean in. You know, yeah. when people are, are curious, they generally lean, lean forward, unless, of course, it's done fast, and then that's normally quite aggressive. It's right. But that, oh, that's, oh, yeah, tell me more. That's the classic lean in. You, you've mm -hmm. clearly hit something that, that people are interested in. And that's another good body language tip to be aware of. Okay, fabulous. Um, I got to ask you 500 questions on this one. <laughs> But I'm going to ask you one about the virtual world, as we're yes. all living in a virtual, actually, we're all living in a hybrid world, is the truth of the matter. And the heads yeah. up, you've got three minutes to go. How mm. does all of this change when we think about being virtually? Well, the, the fascinating scenario that's, that's come across to me over the last two years, just paying attention to how does this new world work? What works? What doesn't work? What adjustments do we need to make? The thing that's really fascinating to me is people saying, well, body language doesn't matter because we're not in person anymore. And they couldn't be more wrong. They could not be more wrong. 
The truth of the matter is when we're in this virtual world, it's harder to keep people's engagement. Mm-hmm. And let's remember what I said right, right at the start. Human beings are primarily visual yeah. creatures. If you are not visually engaging when you talk to people, you, their attention will wander. And listening to a uh, talk with Nancy Duarte of Duarte Inc. And she said this wonderful thing, your enemy, your competition is their inbox. Yeah. That, that, right? Your competition is their inbox. How do you keep them? And you need to visually engage people with more gestures in order to keep them uh, visually engaged. So actually use your hands more than you do than actually in a, in a face-to-face interaction. So animation, using your hands to go, it's a small difference and you make a small pinch, but it'll make a big difference. And where we are today versus where we need to get to and show those steps with your hands, all of that draws the eye in, draws the attention in and keeps the attention away from the old inbox Inbox. that's sitting just off screen that people can easily access. And pinging and flashing and doing all sorts of things in the background to draw your attention to that device for sure. Now, visually, this is one I struggle with. So when I'm talking, I use my hands quite frequently. But when I'm on Zoom, I have to, or on any other visual, um, virtual connection, your hands have to get way up. Yeah. And how did, you know, that takes some work to figure out how to get that in a way that feels natural. You got any tips about that? Because you seem to do that well. Yeah. And the only reason I do that well is because I've thought about it. I've seen what doesn't work. I've done some experimentation and find out something that works. So the first thing and the most important to me, to be very quick, is environment. I'm sitting quite far back from my computer. So it's easier for my hands to come into vision and not be too in your face. Now, if I was to bring myself forward and then start doing this, you know, if I'm really close, it's just too much as too in your face. So I've got quite a long lead on my headset and microphone, which means I don't, I'm not using the microphone in my PC. I can be right back here and using hands. The thing you talked about, it's not, we don't naturally gesture up here. You're absolutely right. right. So I call this as my drive on the right moment. So I I learned how to drive on the left. It's driving the right. I have to make that conscious effort to bring my hands up. When I go to the States, I've got to make a conscious effort to drive on the right-hand side of the road. So bringing your hands up and bringing it visual and realize we don't do this naturally, but it's needed, it works, and it gets more comfortable with practice. So sit back and get used to using your hands to use okay. what I, one of the cards is called animation, using your hands to visually illustrate. Okay. All right. Fabulous. Martin, sadly, we are out of time. I'm always running out of time, and I think I can keep talking to you for yet another hour without any problem at all. I highly recommend the Body Language Decoder. It's a great set of cards with a single tip on each card, easy to digest, easy to follow. There's advice about deception, advice about confidence, advice about persuasion, advice about a whole host of things. I think, Martin, the thing that really stands out to me is if you haven't done the work, you're not going to be effective. Yeah. So you've got to have done the work to be able to have the mental capacity to read the room. You've got to have done the work to know how you're going to handle the questions. You've got to have done the work to know how you're going to engage your team. So it's doing the work. And I also think this notion of I have to be rehearse it and get comfortable with it even if it's not something I would naturally do is just spot on for what we need in the body language. 
Um, Martin Brooks, as you can tell, an experienced communications coach and trainer and a big consulting practice on this one. The book is Body Language Decoder. And the website, if you want to kind of get in contact with him, is Success Through Impact. Thanks for joining us. And if you would like to know more, if you like this podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server. If you want to know more, check out outofthecomfortzone.com for tools for how to apply this. And definitely join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. See you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.